Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Brock McGillis, first openly gay professional hockey player. He's a public speaker. He's working on a television show. He's traveling from school to school. He's working with high-end NHL prospects and not only trying to, but is making cultural change. Unbelievable individual. And he's now finally living without the lie that he had to live through for so many years. A lie that he told himself and others so that he could play a game that everyone else was playing, which was professional hockey. In this episode, we talk about his journey through all of that, through those lies, and where it led him from a health point of view, from a career point of view, from just a a lifestyle point of view. There are people that can't handle just the stress of trying to make it to the NHL, let alone that on top of a lie as big as I think anyone could try to keep. But this podcast ventures well beyond just that topic of homosexuality and actually becomes a message that can be related to absolutely everyone's life. And what I mean by that is we're relating a lot of our topics in this podcast, in this episode, to the idea of hockey culture. But what I realized as we were talking is that this hockey culture is no different than certain cultures and businesses in university in public locations, wherever you look, there are subgroups, subcultures that have certain expectations and roles you must play to be accepted into the group. And again, I'm not talking anything to do with gender, gender orientation, sexuality, nothing. I'm just talking simply people not being themselves because of the idea or belief that they won't be accepted into the group that they're a part of and that it's limiting everyone. When we decide we're not going to pursue a certain hobby, we're not going to dress a certain way because there's a chance we may not be accepted or there's a chance that we might have a little bit of friction that we have to work through to do something that we truly want to do. And then we all conform to the same ways, very similar to the hockey culture, I will admit, that we talk about the same things, we walk the same way, we dress the same. And is that an exciting and is it a healthy way to be? So that's something Brock and I really dive into. But there's two main reasons I thought this episode is perfect, perfect timing and selfishly perfect for me. And one is the last episode we just did with Wally Shaw talked about getting to know other cultures, other races, and then being able to accept them or live with them. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to be best friends with them. But it's a respect thing and an understanding thing. I think that's very similar to the topic today. We're not talking about accepting everyone and agreeing the way everyone views the world. It's just, let's hear them out. Let's talk about it and then find a way to live with it and not cause unneeded, useless negativity towards a certain group. And the second reason is because I openly admit to Brock that in the past, I did use the wrong language and I have been ignorant And I am from a culture that I believe can improve, as we can all improve. So I I admit that, and I think this is a great conversation for me, but also now I can get educated and share Brock's message. 
and you'll hear exactly how everyone, everyone listening can make a really, really positive impact in the discussion of homosexuality or even homophobia and that we can, you know, push the needle a little bit. And again, it's not that we have to agree with everyone. It's so that we can add respect in this world instead of this unneeded negativity and segregation and degradation to certain groups. So yes, this episode was a big one for me. I think it's going to be a big one for everyone. I think we're really challenging the status quo. We're challenging the norm. So I actually encourage everyone to share this one. Before we get going, as always, truelocal.ca. High quality meat, individually packaged, shipped to your doorstep. I think I had already notified everyone. I discovered their sausage with a little bit of cheese inside, a little bit of spice. Unbelievable. Their steaks, also amazing. So check them out. You can use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to receive $25 off a regular size box. And you'll be eating clean, eating healthy. So check out truelocal.ca. All right, here we go. I am honestly so excited about this conversation for two reasons. One is I just did an episode actually with a, a man named Wally Shaw and we talked about, he gives a speech about the power of, of people's narratives, but we were talking about race and he's a Canadian Muslim from Mississauga area. And, and he made me realize that just the power of what we say and how it can affect people. And I know I'm preaching to the choir right now with, with what I'm saying, but I thought, even more so with the conversation we're going to have, I think the way in the locker room, outside of the locker room and and reading so many articles about your story, like even the parents, the coaches, the scouts, just the, the way we talk about things and the wording we use and what we choose shapes this, this culture that is in the hockey world. And, and so I, I thought after that, the episode we just had, this is, similar in, in how we choose our wording, which, which creates this narrative that then paints the picture that we all have in our mind of certain groups in society. And that's where I think, so that's one reason I'm excited. And the other reason is too, it's also a conversation that I feel I should have because I would be the first one to admit I haven't been perfect with the words I've chosen in the past. And I think this is a real big step for me education wise, because I need to learn, but then I, now I can also share it and, and seeing, looking through your social media and seeing your impact on teams, especially in the OHL. Like I, I'm not that far removed from it and the impact you've had, you can tell just from the photos, the acceptance and the understanding and the education that you've had on these group on these groups of of young individuals that don't want to listen to anyone and that think they're God's gift. Um, I use that, those two words, God's gift. I'm like, because I look at and say, I was, I, I walked around like I was God's gift to the world. Yeah. you, You know, but I literally say that to them. Yeah. And, and I think they realize once they start talking about that stuff that they're like, Oh, okay. And it, it, it is, um, it's really neat going in there because I don't think they recognize and, and know what to expect. So they're a little hesitant at first until I get going. And it's not like, like some of the groups that go in literally from what I've been told, sit there and point the finger at them and tell them how bad they are and what they're doing wrong in the world. 
But, you know, the language you used, I used it too. It's a product of the environment. Right. And so what is, when you first enter a room with these young hockey players, and I feel like in this conversation, we're going to bounce all over the place. But when you enter a room with these young hockey players that I don't even think I need to paint the landscape for people listening. It's pretty, I mean, started now. Pardon? Have we started recording? Yeah, yeah. We're just, oh. this is it. This is it. Oh. Just conversation. It's, yeah. So it's not very interview esque. It's more just, okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, when you enter a, a locker room, like the picture I saw on social yeah. media, you with the Sudbury Wolves in the Ontario Hockey League, that is a room of 16 to 21 year olds that are, that don't want to do anything to look out of the group of this macho, heteronormative, culture that is hockey so what what do you think it is they assume at first and then how do you i guess then are different how are you different then from the other people they've had this conversation with well i think i'm fortunate in the fact that i am one of them i present masculine uh walking down the street i i would be assumed to be heterosexual i um and and I think, you know, when it comes to sexuality and and these types of things or, or being more masculine or feminine, it's it's more of a spectrum than anything else. I think anyone can be act, you know, what is typically characterized as female and what is typically characterized as male. And, and, and I think we fall on a spectrum and we can, you know, shift the pendulum one way or the other. But um, I walk into this room and a lot of the time I wear t-shirts intentionally because I have muscles and I want them to see that. Um, I start off by um, typically I, I share where I played and um, what I do now. I, I mean, I public speak across Canada, but... I also work with a lot of athletes and a lot of major junior players. So I um, name drop, <laughs> which tends to help because I work with their peers and um, that really does help. I, like when, when I went to Saginaw and um, worked with Troy and his team, two of my athletes are on that team. And one of them's one of their top guys, if not their top guy. So, um, I think when I walk into that room and those two guys give me a hug, as soon as they see me, it, it, you know, captures the attention of the others. But when I don't know anyone in the room, I, I typically name drop. And I do that to say, okay, not only did he play, but he hasn't like left our world because hockey's incredibly insular. These kids are moving away from home at, you know, 15, 16 years old, um, into new cities. Uh, typically, most of the players aren't from the community they're playing in, in major junior or even junior for that matter. And um, so they hang out with one another. So hockey players tend to hang out with more hockey players, and that's all their peer group. That's that's their whole group of friends. During the season and in the off season, they tend to hang out with the hockey players they grew up playing hockey with. So they, um, it's incredibly insular, and they don't want to let anyone in. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And you see it from the NHL level right down the minor hockey level. Um, things happen in the sport, and instead of trying to get outside resources to help fix the sport or the the social aspects of it, they try and tackle it themselves because I don't think they know how to let people in mm-hmm. because it's been so insular for so long. And and um, but because I'm still inside that bubble, they let me in. Right. I'm very fortunate with that. So, and then I just start sharing my story and how I was, I was a cocky hockey player who thought I was God's gift to the world. And I was a womanizer and I, you know, acted like I was sweet in my peers and, um, adults and different people thought I had this phenomenal life, but I would go home at night and cry. I hated myself. I want to die, and on a number of occasions, I tried to. Wow. And then I think they were, see their life in that, you know, like being popular, going to a mall, and people wanting autographs or different things, or, uh, you know, walking around having people look at you, and then going from that to, oh, this guy who was just like me that went home and broke down emotionally every single night. Um, drank every single night was suicidal and I think that's where I start to kind of draw at you know the emotion that you know hockey players typically don't show but it's there everyone has that and they see it in themselves and they see their weak points likely and and their struggle because they all have them whether they're homesick or going through some form of mental illness or anything else they're 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 not they're they're all struggling in some capacity and dealing with something so then i think they see that and, and they recognize that and then they're like oh this guy's like me it's interesting again i like the conversation i said i had in a previous episode one thing that was brought up was that hurt people have a way of hurting people and it's I mean, going exactly to what you're saying is often when, when someone opens up and is vulnerable, it opens up the, then it's kind of a green light for other people that have pushed things in the back of their heads for so long. They're like, Oh, we're allowed as, as a fellow hockey player, we're allowed to show our emotion. And that's makes such a big impact, which I think is just incredible with what you're doing. And in the photos, you can, you can totally see it. And, you know, I wish I was there for those talks because I think it would make a lot of waves in, in the hockey world. It becomes a safe space, right? And, and it, it looked like the speech was, or the talks sometimes with hockey teams often are in the locker room, which is that safe space for the quote-unquote hockey community kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I have to ask, I understood the stress on my shoulders of wanting to make it to the NHL. No, you and I both know that alone, that stress alone that we as young hockey players put on ourselves can be, can take a toll and people have the inability to deal with that. What was it like going to the rink every day or coming home from the rink, not only with the stress of wanting to make it to the NHL, but the stress of this huge secret you had that you were keeping from your teammates, but also from all your family members. Like how, what were those days like? They were absolute hell. Um, I, I would go home at night and like I said, I would cry. I, by the age of 18, I was drinking nightly to numb it all the way up to about 23 or 24 years old. Um, every year from the age of 15 on, I had a season ending injury. I, I was ranked on the NHL draft list. I was, supposed to be a guy that 
had a career in the game. And um, like my NHL draft year, I missed six out of the eight months with injuries. I was constantly depressed. I was, it, it, it took a toll. I, th- I think most of my injuries were psychosomatic. And I was just so overwhelmed emotionally and mentally that it just came out through my body and, and it was just injury after injury and it was keeping me away from the rink. But it's really funny because as much as I dreaded, I hated being on the bus and that's supposed to be some of the most fun times. I dreaded being in the locker room. I dreaded being at home, but the only place I felt good was on the ice because all that mattered was the game Mm -hmm. during those 60 minutes nothing else mattered before after yeah i had to hide it and and it was difficult because it was more than just having this secret but i i deliberately kept up appearances i had girlfriends i'm not kidding when i say i was a womanizer um and and through it all i didn't tell my family which was pretty difficult because they are very inclusive. They're incredibly supportive and they love me dearly. And it tore me up that I was, I felt so alone and that I didn't feel like I could tell them because they were involved in the hockey world. My dad coached minor hockey and junior hockey for 30 plus years and scouted in the OHL for 10 or 15 years. My brother was a first round pick in the OHL, played professionally, um, retired because of concussions. Um, and I just feared that not, not that they wouldn't be okay with me, but they would hear the language and, and have more of a sensitive ear to it. And because of that, they would, um, react and their reaction would probably be like, you can't say that. And they would blurt out the fact that I was gay Mm. and that would jeopardize any opportunity that I would have to move on in the game. So it was more of withholding that from your family because not that you were afraid that they wouldn't be supportive. It was more of protecting your career. That was an issue. And that's what I, that's what I find so impressive. And yet you were, I mean, the injuries were there, but you were still able to play. Like when we talk about toughness, whether masculine or feminine and the way it's painted in the hockey world is that, you know, it's the, again, the heteronormative assumptions of, of toughness, but we already know some individuals heterosexual males in the hockey world can't handle just the stress of hockey. Imagine that plus hiding something, this identity. Like I, I think that is, that is incredible that you were able to do that. It, it taught me a lot now. I didn't realize because you feel weak in the moment. I thought this was cool. In regards to any challenge or situation, we have to remember, and Brock makes it quite clear that in the moment we feel weak and we feel like we have no answers. And as he says, we're reactionary and just totally in prey mode other than predator mode which we'd like to be in. So that the acceptance of that in that moment's the realization that, yeah, we feel pretty weak right now, but it's just in this moment. And it doesn't define our actual weakness. We're not actually weak in this moment. Similar to what Michael Landsberg says about depression and anxiety, that it's not a weakness. We may feel weak in the moment, and that's a part of life, but that doesn't mean we are weak. And there's still strength there to work through whatever that issue is. It's a probably a reminder that could, I think, help a lot of people, but 
thought I would just share that. You feel so insecure and weak and scared and, and everything is reactionary and you're just trying to cover your tracks and, and just almost survive. But now looking back, you realize if I could deal with that, then I can handle any situation thrown at me and and I will be okay. And so while you were playing pro, so you move on to pro hockey, at that point, like, did you already have a partner? another a boyfriend or was that so when i no i i didn't um so when i was playing um in kalamazoo i was still dating women um and i was 20 at the time and then when i was 22 or 23 i think it was 22 i moved to um europe to play and while i was over there um i was still drinking I was a mess and I knew uh, two things were going to happen. The first one was a for sure. Um, my hockey career was going to happen. You can't drink every day and, and be depressed and, and suicidal. And that was inevitable. My career was going to end soon. Um, and then also I realized that I was probably going to end up dead. So at that point I decided, okay, I need to figure myself out. And I, Ended up after the season, I came home and um, I went on a date with a man and I ended up in a three year relationship with him. And at the time I was, I almost felt relief. I was like, okay, I figured myself out because I saw, um, I would go online and this before apps Mm -hmm. and I would go on dating websites and I would see a whole generation older than me. And there was a lot of closeted men who had wives or children or different things. And, and, and I don't judge them because they, they came up in a time that was Mm -hmm. different and I'm not judging anyone for, you know, their path and their road in life. Everyone has their own journey. For sure. But I knew that I was on the brink of having a wife and children and then I'd be 40 or 50 and I'd be online, you know, looking for men at that point. I was like, okay, I have to figure this out. And, and then when I did, I realized I was gay and and I always knew, but I finally had accepted it because I'm a big believer that you're the only one that can accept you. Another interesting point that I was actually talking about this topic with my friend, Ian Bigford, who's going to be on the show again soon, philosophy major and, smart, smart, smart man. And he was telling me, and we were discussing through basically again, this, this, how do we build this resilient mind, this heroic mind? And we paint pictures in our mind is what Ian was telling me. And the picture we see in our mind is the ideal. And we have pretty good control over that picture, not total control, but pretty good control. And when we aren't close to that ideal in our mind, that picture in our mind, that's when depression and anxiety can start to set in. But then if we change that image in our mind or we accept the image that exists in the present is when we can start to find that composure, that happiness. And that sounds very similar to what Brock is saying right here, that you're the only one that can accept you. And it is so true. You're the only one that can either change that story in your mind or accept where you are in relation to that story today. For example, just to make this even more clear, if your goal is to be, or if someone's goal is to be a doctor, and they are just starting med school, but there is nothing more important to them than becoming a doctor. So that gap between where they are and where they 
think they should be in their mind is going to be a, a massive area where stress and anxiety, et cetera, can find a home. Whereas if we retell ourselves a bit of a different story or we find a way which is a little more difficult to accept that we're not at the end, not at the end goal, that's how we can overcome that. We can get rid of those stresses and anxieties. I finally accepted myself when I, I recognized I was gay and, and began dating my partner at the time. Um, so I felt a lot of relief initially, but it actually got worse because I was still playing hockey. Um, after that season, I was going to go back and play professionally in Europe, but I had a couple injuries and I ended up going to play university hockey in Montreal, Concordia. And now I was dating a man, which is something I'd never done before. And I was panicked. I didn't know how to do that in play. Um, and still no one knew at this point? Nobody. Not a soul. We dated for three years without anyone knowing. And you, when you went to Concordia, you were how old? 25 or 26. Okay. Yeah, I, I went later. I did the opposite of most people where they go to school right away and then go. Yeah, yeah. This was a point where I realized the impact that every degrading or condescending homophobic word or slur that we use makes on someone's life that we don't even see. And I think this is a like this is this is something that no one should ever have to do. I I went there and and I was like I have to keep up appearances. And I actually told him, I said, I'll likely sleep with women. Um, as you can imagine, that ended the relationship. <laughs> this day, I feel horrible about it. And, and it's something that I really regret because he was a wonderful person and somebody I still care about. But we, we don't have any form of relationship because of that. And right. But in that moment, I was closeted, mm. right? And And the fear and the panic of being exposed was so immense and, and it led to more injuries. I had two knee surgeries after that. And, and I was, you know, basically I had a Concordia jacket and kind of went to school because I was always hurt. Mm -hmm. But I, I felt worse at that point. And you were, you told your partner at that time that you were um, going to be sleeping or meeting with other women purely to keep on this, I don't want to say facade, this image yeah, that... It is a facade. Yeah, the the just kind of falling into the culture that's expected not only to to play the game, but to be accepted into the room and, and the social side of the game. Completely. And, and, and it's, you know, I think those two things go hand in hand. If you, if you don't meet the cultural aspects, the norms of hockey, then you won't be able to play it at a high level. And, and it's, if you, if you're, if you don't meet the norms in the locker room, you won't be able to play it. Look at, you know, look at the, how Calgary got rid of Dougie Hamilton. And one of the things that they said is, well, he didn't go with the team. He went to museums. I had to add my own two cents here. I actually know Dougie indirectly just because the hockey world is so small and played against him growing up, heard his journey to the NHL. He and his brother actually have played in the NHL. And they are such academics and well-rounded individuals receiving 
academic awards through their careers, yet now they're painted with a different brush when they're put into this different insular culture. Like, really? You're, you're, you're criticizing somebody for trying to, you know, expose himself to learn and, and, and have, a, you know, a well-balanced life? Or you look in the past, Paul Korea. Paul Korea was a guy that did yoga in the 90s and was a vegetarian and exercised before players were training the way they do today. And he was deemed an outsider. Like, he never, he's a Hall of Famer who never got the credit he deserved in his career. And, yeah. and, and that was my fear is being the outsider. And because I didn't take that linear path to the NHL, I, I knew I'd have to take the long way around. And for me, if I was, you know, out as a gay man, well, I'm an easy person to cut. Right. Well, you, you couldn't walk in a locker room and, and sit there and read a book. Can you imagine bringing, like, a novel into a locker room and you're sitting there, you get there before practice, an hour before, you're in the OHL or pro, and you, you're where you have stalls, and you're sitting in your stall reading a book. And look at you like you're insane. <laughs> yeah. And and this is what I, I, I try and get through to these these players, especially at the major junior level, is like this idea of normal. Because you can go into any city in Canada or town, and right away you walk into the mall in that community, you know which kids play hockey. <laughs> they walk the same, talk the same, and dress the same. All of them. And it's like Okay, but they're not the same. They've just conformed to this ideal of normal that exists, and and it's something that is perpetuated. Like and because players, once they're done playing, typically stay in the game and coach or manage. Then they also have children who become hockey players come from hockey parents and this cycle continues over and over and over. And so our, our language, our actions and everything just conform to this. And it's so insular, like I said before, Mm -hmm. kind of conform to what the mold is and what you should be. And to stray from that is different. And if you're different, you might as well be a fag. Right, they, right. They kind of go hand in hand, you know. Anything that's different is is the same thing as being a gay man in the sport. So I look at that and say, uh, when I go and talk to these kids, I, I try to tell them that, and, and I do it whether it's at schools or if I'm speaking to adults or but but with this group especially, and normal doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. We're all a bunch of weirdos, and that's incredible. Because if we were all the same, the world would be boring. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why the hockey world is so boring. You know, you, like a hockey interview is the most dull thing in the world. It, it, you are, it is so funny you're saying that. Yesterday I watched Tavares and um, Matthews do an interview with Elliot Friedman. And I respect the heck out of all three of those individuals, Elliot Friedman himself from when I went through my injury and he came to my house and respected my family, et cetera. And his interview skills are obviously amazing. So I don't mean to talk poorly about them. He's a really cool guy. Yeah. He's a, he's a stud. He's awesome. That's the three of them are, but the, 
when it, when they were talking to the two of them, it was like, I was so, when I saw the link and saw, wow, I'd love to hear, I've never really heard these two speak ever. They're, they're not really in the media. So I clicked the link and I, I think I watched about two minutes of it because it was like that there wasn't much there. Like I'm totally what you're saying. And, and then if you are, you know, a little flashier, a little more outspoken, you're almost vilified in that world. Even some baseball players, you look in the dugout after they hit home runs and whatnot, they're having a blast and it's fun. Like baseball is such a slow sport, but that's more fun to watch sometimes than a hockey game because personality, you're, you're feeling the energy or after a touchdown and you, and you see, you know, the dances and whatnot. And, and, and I mean, the NFL is known as the no fun league and yet they still have a little more swagger to them than hockey players. And it's like, you're hurting yourself by trying to conform instead of just being you. At this point, I asked Brock, okay, so what is the first thing that you say to a room of 19 to 20 ignorant young individuals that may or may not think they're a pretty valuable asset to this world? His answer actually stems beyond sport, beyond hockey. You could picture his answer in any subgroup or any group within society that has any type of hierarchy, which is pretty much every group has a pecking order, whether it's business, whether it's a social group. And so everyone does have the ability to make a difference. And you'll hear exactly how Brock talks about this situation. I believe that major junior teams across Canada have the largest social impact on our society. I think they have a bigger social impact than NHL players. And um, from my experiences in the past two years, I've come to realize, I didn't realize how big hockey is. And um, uh, I criticize the NHL on a situation they handled and, and, and the player. And I don't typically do that. Um, I think that, you know, players are just products of their environment and, and I don't fault them for the language they use because it's, it's habits have been created since they were seven years old and now they're in their thirties and we can't expect them to change, you know, 20, 30 years worth of habits. Um, but I criticized the league for not handling it better or the ramifications being so low. When I did that, I started receiving death threats. The only time I've received negative um, feedback since I started speaking publicly, since I've been in the media, since I've come out, was when I criticized the NHL. And, and it was baffling. But it made me realize ever uh, in Canada, we always talk about like not really having an identity. Nobody understands what the Canadian identity is. But I think our identity is hockey. And I think it has a bigger social impact than we even realize. So when I go into these rooms, I want them to recognize the social impact they have. I equate them to Instagram influencers or YouTubers. Um, Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid are like George Clooney or Brad Pitt. They're like, they're not reachable by the general population. You know, you're not going to walk into the mall and see George Clooney or Brad Pitt, but you might go to your mall and see a famous YouTuber. 
you know, you might go to the mall and see the Instagram influencer you follow and like, and their every day is more similar to your every day. So with a major junior player, they go to high school with their peers. They're still, their peers want to be them just as much as they want to be the NHL player, because that's a stage to get to the NHL. Um, adults still worship them the same way. They're super fans and major junior in every city. And they, worship them the way they do NHL players and kids look up to them the same. The only difference is they go to kids practices or kids get to see them at the rinks. Um, they go to high school with their peers and adults who follow the team get to talk to them after games or after practice, whereas they don't with NHL players. So they actually have an even bigger social impact because they're more visible in the communities. And I want them to realize that. And as soon as they realize that, they can have a they can create a social shift in our in our country, and that's huge. And and it's not just LGBT related; it's everything. Um, there was a player last year, and he would be a really good interview. I think you'd find pretty insightful. Playing in Erie, uh, Aiden Timmermans, I believe his name is. Um, he we talked about this and he realized the social impact he could have. And after the tragedy in Humboldt, he started a t-shirt line and raised money. And I think he raised something like 20 or $50,000 for them. And, and it's not even like he's in a major, it's not like he's in London or Kitchener. That's, that's not a major, you know, and it's not like, like the kid's a good player, but it's not like he was Connor McDavid coming through, you know, where he already had that massive profile. And he was able to do that because these kids have a bigger social impact. And because of that, the words they use, the way they act, the way they dressed is copied by our mainstream society. So if they're using sexist, racist, homophobic language, well, their, their peers are copying it because they want to fit in and be cool. Is the hockey in Canada is the equivalent of, you know, the quarterback of the football team. So they're, they're sitting there and they want to be cool. They want to fit in. So they start talking like the hockey boys. Then, you know, younger kids who look up to them hear that. They start using it. And there's a trickle-down effect. And there, there's, you know, this hierarchy. So if they're up here and then the junior kids are using it and then the AAA kids and then it trickles down before you know it, the house league kids and novice are using it. And then it's just a vicious cycle that continues to repeat itself. So by recognizing their place in society and the social impact they have, and then just doing something as simple as creating a shift in their language, they're going to have a massive impact on our culture. So, so that's kind of, in a nutshell, the first thing I really want them to realize. It's that simple. or Or just... You know, you're, you're a captain on a team and you hear a player using, you know, homophobic language or it, it's funny in hockey, players tend to put each other down or chirp each other by using sexist language or homophobic language primarily. You know, uh, obviously there's a race component and I don't want to take that, you know, right. away. it's right. a big thing. But uh, when they're chirping on a daily basis... It's those two things. And, and by just eliminating that, because basically what they're saying, they don't realize that if, if they use sexist language, you know, basically what they're saying is 
that a woman is less than a man. That, oh, you're this, you're weak. Because you have, you know, female characteristics. And and in the same token, in the same breath, when they use homophobic language, they're saying that that is equivalent to a woman which is less than a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know if we're all equal, but by just something like as simple as saying "Don't say that," that's not okay here. I had a story. Um, so before I came out to my athletes, after I retired, I still wasn't out, and I began working with players, doing off ice, on ice type stuff, and. Um, I was afraid to come out. I didn't know I was in Northern Ontario and there's not a ton of exposure to the LGBTQ community. And, and I was really afraid that I would lose my athletes. Nobody would want to work with me if they knew I was gay. Um, then one day and I got a phone call from a hockey mom and Hockey parents um, are stereotypically a little, I, I don't think I'm crossing a line and calling them insane. I receive between 50 and 100 phone calls or messages a day from parents every day. And um, this call was a little different. I had a mother call me and she said, Brock, I want to set you up on a date. And I went, oh, dear God, no. <laughs> like, what am I going to say to this woman? and I sat there for a moment and I was like, all right, what's her name? And she said, Steve. And I said, pardon me. And she said, his name's Steve. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you're gay. I'm like, how do you know that? And she's like, Brock, you're gay. My son told me two years ago, and her son was 15 at the time, so he'd known since he was 13. And she goes, Brock, they all know. They've known for years. All the boys know. And I panicked. My heart started racing. I was sweating. I'm like, oh, my goodness, all my athletes are going to leave. They're going to train somewhere else. What am I going to do? I, you know, I'm in school. I'm finishing school. And uh, what am I going to do to pay for school? And, and I was panicked. I thought about it for a second. I'm like, I work with a lot of hockey players. And there are these cocky, hyper-masculine, macho bros who think they're God's gift to the world that walk around like they own every room they're in. And they all know I'm gay and they choose to train with me. How cool is that? And I thought in that moment, maybe I should come out. Maybe I should tell them. But then I thought... No, you know what? They knew all this time and they didn't tell me. So I'm going to do a little sociology experiment. I know that they know, but they don't know that I know that they know. So I started observing their behaviors. I started to recognize that every time they would say something homophobic, they would pause, think about it, and apologize. And, And that's half the battle with these kids and, and talking with the major junior kids is just having them think about the words they're using instead of just automatically using words. Just having that recognition to go, oh, oh, sorry, Brock, sorry. And, and I'd be like, yeah, it's okay, no problem. Like, that's cool. 
And I thought, well, maybe I am, you know, we have this little bubble within the hockey bubble and maybe I am creating, you know, a shift, a social shift here. Maybe, maybe it is possible. Then I thought, or maybe they know that, you know, they know I'm gay and they like me. So they're apologizing when they say it to me, but they go to school and call kids fags every day or say things are gay. And I really didn't know. I had no idea what they were doing outside of here. Then one day I have a, a spring coach that works with my players and he had them on a bunch of them on a track and it was the end of a two hour workout and he told them they had 10 more 200 meter sprints or something. And one of my younger players who comes from an incredibly progressive household, his mom is a good friend of mine. She, you know, uh, she's supported me through all of this. Um, the F word you couldn't say growing up was fake. And his dad gives me a hug every time he sees me and tells me he's walking with me in this journey and how proud he is of me. And this young player looks at the sprint coach when he finds out he has all these sprints to do still and he goes, that's okay. And one of my older players who's in the OHL looked at him and said, we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups." And the younger player said, you know what? You're right. And did 50 push-ups on the spot. And it made me realize, my, my sprint coach called me later and said, Brock, you'll never believe this. And it made me realize, wow, a shift can happen in this world. And actually, then some of my athletes, it, it became a thing within our little bubble, the 50 push-ups or whatever. But they started taking it amongst their, their teammates or their peer groups at school. And the, the kid that ended up doing push-ups, one of his good buddies was... Uh, on FaceTime, they were 15, I think, at the time, on FaceTime with uh, a young woman, and she said, let's hang out tonight. And I've never met this player in my life. I, I didn't know him. And he said, no, I can't have practice. And she said, oh, that's so gay. And he looked at her and said, give me 50 push-ups right now or I'm never going to speak to you again. And she started doing push-ups. It's fascinating that a shift can be created so easily just by recognizing the importance of your language and who it may be impacting. So another thing I do, and, and just by standing up and just saying something as a leader, mm -hmm. you know, if, if a captain stands up in a room or even any player stands up in a room and says, Hey, you shouldn't be saying that we got to be better or just brings in a book and, and doesn't conform to the norm. And then maybe it allows two other players to bring in their books or bring in, you know, uh, they start listening to classical music on, in their headphones or, you know, they're, they're Googling art or they're, you know, trying to learn about the world and people and, and, and places. We're going to become, uh, as uh, hockey people, much more well-rounded, probably happier. There's a lot of unhappy people in hockey not enjoying it, but they can't be themselves. And, it, and if we allow them to be themselves and we give them a space, going back to that safe space, to, to, not to be, uh, if you're gay, great, you know, like be gay and, and phenomenal, but just to be able to bring a book into the room, just to be able to, you know, watch an artsy movie and not just the stereotypical action or comedies just 
to do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anyone else. And if we allow that more, I think the culture will shift and and people will be a lot happier because they didn't have identity. This made me think, how many people don't know of skills they they have, abilities they have, or interests they have that could make them so happy because they're afraid to get out of, and I don't even mean comfort zone, but out of the assumed norms that come with their main sport and beyond sport, their main group outside of their family. It's kind of sad to think that, you know, we're in this life for a short, short, short time. And some people won't enjoy, I guess, whatever you want to call it, the fruits of life, the joys of life, not because they can't or they can't afford it or they don't have the ability. That is all there, but it's in their mind that is stopping them because of an assumed obligation to conform to expectations of their group. It's, it's sad, really. You neglect yourself to play the sport and, and you don't give yourself an identity. And a lot of us don't know who we are. And, and it takes a long time post-sport to figure it out. It's taken me up until two years ago to come forward and, and be myself and now do what I'm doing, which is my passion. And, you know, you look what you're doing and, and it's, it's trying to figure out a lot of, you, you see it. Uh, I look at so many ex players older that, you know, after they're done playing have no clue. And, they stay involved in the sport, whether it's in coaching or different aspects of it, just because it's all they know. I remember being 19 years old and struggling with my sexuality, injured, depressed, suicidal. I, I missed a whole year with a torn MCL. And I wouldn't go to an arena. I wouldn't step foot, even though my buddies, I was home in Sudbury and my buddies were playing for the Wolves and buddies on the team there or junior games. I refused to go into a rink because I would see parents, I would see hockey people and they would ask me, oh, why aren't you playing? Where, where, what's going on with your career? And, da, 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 da. and I just didn't want to answer the questions because... Now, all of a sudden, I'm just a person. And I don't have that, you know, celebrity status, so to speak. And, and you know, we, we have a tiny bit of celebrity being hockey players in communities in Canada. And I didn't have that. And I, I only identified as Brock McGillis hockey player. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's, you know, there's 10,000 sides. There's, we're, we're such... We're so much more than what we give ourselves credit for and allow ourselves to be. I'm not just Brock McGillis, former hockey player, gay man. I'm, you know, friend. I have partner. I have, you know, interests and hobbies and, and different things that I, I love and I'm passionate about. And, and this is, you know, just one aspect of me. And as players, we don't, Gives our, give ourselves the opportunity to have an identity. And it's so critical. 
it's so important to have an identity and know who you are. And, and it's, it has to go beyond the game. I, I recognize that people say, how can these ex-players have all these struggles or like NHL players or professional athletes? I mean, yes, but we're not brought up to be well-rounded humans. We're robots. We're robots that play a sport. And we're kept in a small bubble. And then as soon as they don't need us anymore, we're thrown to the wolves and we're thrown out in the world where everyone else has become these well-rounded and, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that everyone has some form of mental illness and struggle, but a little more well-rounded, a little bit more of an identity and, and, you know, a diverse set of skills but we, we're, we're just trying to figure out, and we have them because you need them all to play the sport, but we've never been told we have them. <laughs> we've never been shown how to use them outside of the sport. So we, we're just thrown out there in this world. It's like growing up in, you know, in the jungle, and then you come into society, and, and now you're trying to live like a normal human. Now I asked Brock to catch us up on the story. So after that mother reached out to him, did he now decide to open up? How did he get to the stage that he's on today, open and confident and happy with where he's at? Um, no, I still didn't come out after that. So um, I always knew I was going to come out and do advocacy work. Um, I was friends with Brendan Burke, who's the son of Brian Burke. Um, former <clears throat> Leafs GM, Flames president, and now it, I think he's with Sportsnet. And Brendan wanted to make in hockey like his dad. And I met Brendan when I was at Concordia. Um, I saw this guy being interviewed between periods uh, during a Leafs game, and and he came out as being gay and still wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. So, as you're aware, the hockey world's a very small place so i reached out to brendan and we instantly hit it off and became friends and he and i understood each other so we i finally felt like i had somebody in my life who understood what i was struggling with i could talk to about the breakup i had just had with my partner because of all the conditions i needed and you know but i could also talk to about hockey and and i, I felt like it was such a relief to finally have somebody who understood these two massive parts of my life that are so on such opposite ends of the spectrum. And it, it was, I was blessed to know him. Um, but one day Brendan sent me a message and it said, I can't wait for the day that you're up to your family. Like I am to mine. I panicked when I saw this message. I didn't know how to answer it. I didn't know what to say. I couldn't fathom the idea of, telling my family um so i didn't answer him two days later brendan died in a car accident those were the last words he ever said to me wow. and brendan and i had spoken about um doing advocacy work and both hopefully making it to the nhl in some capacity and and changing perceptions and and views on homosexuality and making sport more inclusive I sat my brother down not long after and came out to him. Uh, I, I knew I had to come out to somebody 
and I told him when my brother was playing in the OHL. No, he was done his O career. He was playing university hockey and on his, he was going to play pro. I said, Corey, I'm gay. And my brother is a six foot two, 210 pound power forward who fought, scored goals. He was first round pick in the league. He was the, you know, hyper masculine bro. And I told him and he's like, yeah, so you're Brock. I love you. And it was really cool um, to know that. I, I was very lucky. And Soon thereafter, I told my friends and my family, but I remained closeted in hockey. And even after that incident with my athletes and that mother, I still remained closeted. But a few things happened um, two years ago. There was an incident in Orlando. Um, there was a shooting, well, a massacre, really, at mm-hmm. Pulse Nightclub where 49 people were murdered just for being gay. And the LGBTQ community is... Um, still not totally I'm going to use the word accepted um, in mainstream Western world. You know, it's, it's um, those bars like the one that was shot up are safe spaces because two men can walk down the street in Toronto and still be called names. Or if you kiss your partner and that's in cities like Toronto, if you go to smaller communities, across Canada or the US even even more so um, you you might be beaten up you're gonna be threatened you're gonna be called names and and these bars are places where people can go and be themselves um, and that was taken away from my community and that that wasn't somewhere across the world like I've had people reach out from across the world in areas where uh, being gay is illegal. And uh, I had one person reach out from a country where um, his best friend started the first LGBT newsletter in the country, and he was found by the government and decapitated. And this was, you know, 2017. Um, So to have that happen in our backyard in the US, it was like that could have been me and my friends in Toronto. And it really, really pissed me off. Um, around that time, I had a hockey association in the community I'm from, from Sudbury, um, blackball my business and wouldn't let me work with athletes there. And they didn't give a reason, they just wouldn't allow me. Every one of my competitors was allowed except for me. And then uh, my dad saw the president one day of the association and said, well, is it because Brock's gay? And that's, I knew something like that would happen once right, right. it'd stand up for me. And the president said, what? I had no idea. He then went and told every other coach who didn't know for sure. And I was kicked off a of staff the next day. And this is only, this is only 2017? 2017? This, uh, 2016, 20. so two years ago. Um, yeah, and then um, two kids playing a pretty high level of hockey were uh, told they want to come out, and they were told by their teams if they did, they were cut. Like to come out to, like work, to, with come out to work with you? No, they wanted to come out publicly. Oh. oh. And they were told... Uh, um, they were cut. So they 
when I heard that and with these other two instances, I, I decided it was time to empower myself. It was time to take uh, weakness and turn it into strength. It was time to, you know, um, show the world that you can be a gay man and still be a hockey player or an athlete of any form. And, and for me, it was just like, you know what? Nobody's going to treat me like this again. Nobody's going to use my sexuality against me. I'm tired of hiding. So I wrote an article for Yahoo Sports. Um, I'm not sure. Do you know Sanaya Sapurji? I read the, I read the, I read the article. article. Okay. Sanaya is a friend of mine. Um, she was um, back when I was playing. She she's been covering the league for a long time. Back when I was playing, she was with um, uh, the Toronto Star, and I've known her since then. And she saw some of my struggle um, back then. And I told her I said I'm coming out, and she said, "Okay, let's let's do this." So I wrote it through her and Yahoo and I came out publicly and I thought maybe I'd help a couple of kids. Maybe, you know, the odd person would, um, hear my story and, and, you know, maybe feel better, maybe reach out for support. But it, the, the amount of people that reached out was overwhelming. Uh, it, it actually shocked me. So that's, That in itself showed me that there was a need, mm -hmm. but it got me to here today where I'm traveling around the country, speaking at schools and events and for organizations and um, trying to create a shift in our culture. I am passionate about people. I just love people. I, I still, even though I'm doing this, I still work with all my hockey kids. I have 80 to 100 hockey kids that I, they're my children. Um, they, I, I take their calls day or night. Um, I've helped kids in the OHL, you know, or different levels who are homesick, fall asleep on the phone at four in the morning uh, to, you know, dealing with breakups, to dealing with every situation you can imagine. And I haven't been able to, even though it's probably a bit of a detriment for my career, um, give that up and, and take a step away from that to focus on my new goals. I, I love the sport. I love hockey and I, I really love the kids. I love working with kids and, and engaging with them. It's, it's funny. I'll have kids that come to me with stuff that they might not go to their dad with, you know, just because you're supposed to conform to this hyper-masculine norm. And, and I'm happy to give them that resource and that outlet of somebody that they can, talk to and, and now I'm doing it on a larger scale and hopefully as time goes on I'm setting up a charity now and um, working on a TV show and a few other projects um, I'll be able to do it on a larger scale where it's not just me doing it but I'll have a team of people that are able to help others and and you know provide services so that people can reach out so that people can live a healthier more well-balanced life you heard it right there brock is basically taking on this pain for others he's also sacrificing future in a career just like we've heard with many other individuals camille dumont who's planting 
and harvesting and growing crops in the middle of downtown Vancouver, taking on risk and pain for others to benefit others and try and create a cultural change in how we treat the earth. No different than what Brock is doing here, taking on this pain, this risk, sacrifice to change the culture, create a shift and make this world a better place. I'm, I, this episode made me excited that there are so many amazing individuals in this world. And I, again, I encourage people to share this episode. It is challenging the norms. It is challenging the, the culture and creating positive change that you can tell the way Brock talks about it. It's not, we need more respect. We need more of this. We need more of that. It's let's talk about it have a better way of accepting each other, understanding each other, and being able to live together. But he also is directing it in a way of making others live better. If you can accept things, if you can come out of your shell, if you can be yourself around people, it'll make you healthier as well. So this was a a really fun episode. I enjoyed the conversation. If you are enjoying these episodes as much as I am, and these conversations as much as I am, please leave a positive review on the wherever you're listening to this, whatever platform. It'd be greatly appreciated. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.